Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht. There's been such an upsurge in socialist electoral activity since the first Bernie Sanders campaign five years ago that there's a danger that we forget some of the the more recent OGs of uh, socialist electoral campaigns, uh, specifically Shama Sawant, who is a socialist, a member of the group Socialist Alternative, who was elected to city council in Seattle in 2013, uh, and at this point is one of the most senior members of Seattle's city council. And what Shama has done over that eight years is fairly incredible to behold. She has uh, joined or helped lead fights on major working class issues in Seattle, ranging from a $15 an hour minimum wage and affordable housing in the city and fighting corporate tax giveaways to companies like Amazon and Microsoft, uh, to, to basically being involved in every single major working class fight that has happened in that city. And she is a real testament to what a elected official that is in very close contact with the working class movement can use their office to achieve in a way that really strengthens those movements uh, through the bullhorn that her office provides. And she has been up against an incredible amount of pushback throughout her entire eight years in office that is ongoing today. Uh, as I mentioned in the conversation I have with her, that you're about to listen to, if you just Google her name and go to Google News and, and you can just read the headlines about the absurd attacks that she is constantly subjected to. Uh, so she is someone whose work is very uh, critical to the health of, I think, the left in, in Seattle as well as around the country and someone who is really uh, suffering a lot of blows from uh, from the right, from the Democratic Party, from capital, because of the stances that she has taken, uh, and is someone who is very important for socialists around the country to pay attention and to support. She wrote an article for Jacobin back in November of last year called Democrats and the Right are Attacking Me and Left Movements Everywhere. I will link to that article in the show notes. Here's my conversation with Seattle Socialist City Council member Shama Sawant. Council member Shama Sawant, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Michael. First, I have a technical question I have to ask you. You know, in, in Chile, in the early 70s, they called Salvador Allende like compañero presidente, you know, like comrade president. Do you have a, a title like that that you prefer to be addressed by, like comrade city councilwoman? Or what's what's the preferred the preferred title? Just, just call me Shama. <laughs> okay, it's all right. Very, very humble title. Okay, that's good. So for many of our listeners, you know, we, we obviously have this reborn American left uh, that has especially popped off after the first Bernie Sanders campaign. We have an explosion in socialist activity, especially through the Democratic Socialists of America, but also elsewhere. A lot of our listeners might not remember that you were kind of a socialist elected official in America before it was cool. You were elected to the Seattle City Council in 2013. And I uh, wrote, uh, co-wrote an article with uh, 
Jacobin editor Bhaskar Sankara for In These Times magazine about you and asked, can socialists win elections in the United States? And thankfully, uh, you uh, you you provided the first example to show that the, uh, the answer to that question is thankfully yes. Uh, so why, why don't you just start with that that history, remind people um, you know how it is that you came to run in 2013 and what you've been uh, up to since then. I think you're absolutely right, Micah. It is uh, a very... Important to recognize we are in a remarkably new period globally, but also uh, I think it's really impressive the changes we've seen in America and the con- in the consciousness of ordinary Americans. And it's crucial that we've seen this explosive um, growth in the democratic socialists of America uh, in a, to a smaller degree, obviously, uh, different organizations like Socialist Alternative, the political organization I am part of have been seeing that growth. And when we ran for city council in 2013, actually it was to explore that same question. I mean, the question that you and Bhaskar asked in your article, can socialists get elected in America? Uh, We ran that campaign, Socialist Alternative and I, we ran that campaign in 2013 for city council against a Democrat in Seattle, precisely because the Occupy movement, the public sector uprising in Wisconsin, I think, which you were part of, uh, all of this to us were indicators that a dramatic shift was happening and that it would be foolish for the left to not consciously explore opportunities to build itself. And but I, and I don't mean left broadly only. I also mean the socialist left in particular. And so when we ran our campaign in 2013, we ran... Uh, as an unabashed socialist. I mean, it was not something that we were trying to keep under the covers. We actually had, uh, I don't know if I've shared this with you before, but some uh, Democrats who are now prominent Democrats since then uh, came up to me during the campaign and said, look, I want to support you, but do you have to start every speech by saying I'm a socialist (laughs) or I'm a member of Socialist Alternative? And, you know, at that time, the rule book was even if you're on the left or if you're radical, you don't say that because that is going to be a turnoff to people. But what we proved was that it's exactly the opposite, that what has been a turnoff, what has been a source of tremendous frustration and anger for ordinary Americans is the status quo of corporate politics and that people are looking for something new, something different and something that speaks to working class needs. And so can you go over what you have been up to on the council since 2013? I mean, the the major fights that have taken place, I don't think you would claim credit for all of them, but you've been present and an active player in all of them, whether it's around affordable housing fights or the fight for a $15 minimum wage or any of the other fights that have been taking place nationally and locally in Seattle. So can you go over some of those highlights and what you've been able to do with your office? Yes. As you know, and some of your listeners may know, when we ran in 2013, we uh, made $15 an hour minimum wage the main point on our campaign program. We also ran on taxing the wealthy and big business and for rent control. Can I just stop you actually before you go on? So you made $15 an hour like this this central, I mean, that as an outsider, it seemed to me like you, of course, SEIU had been uh, waging this this important struggle. Um, but there weren't very many elected officials anywhere in the country who were raising this as like the banner. And it, clearly the, the strikes had struck a nerve with people. Um, but you were the only one who I really remember from that time period just making that one of your signature issues as an elected official. And it seemed to have borne great fruit, right? I think that's a very important point uh, you're highlighting because 
it wasn't straightforward, and it, and I think that's part of the serious work that the left and especially the socialist left has to do, which is have a, a you know have a non-trivial approach towards assessing consciousness and having a scientific approach to understanding what is it that's going to capture the imagination of the working class. And it was clear that already the rumblings, you know, from the fast food workers' walkouts in Manhattan in the autumn preceding 2013 was, you know, there were indications that it was going to happen, but it was in no way straightforward. I mean, I'll tell you uh, one measure of how uh, it was actually quite groundbreaking that socialist alternative to COP15 in that serious way was that even some of the leaders of the labor movement who had brought $15 an hour forward on a national basis were actually quite skeptical of that working in Seattle. In fact, some of the prominent labor leaders during the early days of my campaign, I remember, told me they were extremely unhappy with me that I brought up, that we brought up 15 as the prominent plank in our platform and told us, no, we're not going to do 15 in Seattle. But what happened instead was that the rank and file of the labor movement, of those same unions, completely, I mean, this campaign completely captivated them and, and electrified them. Obviously, $15 an hour was embraced as a serious demand, but overall, the way we ran our campaign, you know, first of all, talking about what socialism is, why we need an alternative to the corporate politics of the Democratic and Republican establishments, uh, why we need working class people to build mass movements, and also, you know, fundamentally, it was very different. We didn't, we never made it a personality politics. We always said, that, uh, in fact, we always use the pronoun we. In fact, a reporter once asked me, uh, you know, like, is there some English confusion? Why don't you say I and don't, don't say we? And I said, well, there's a very important reason. I'm glad you're bringing this up, why we say we. <laughs> what was so telling about the mainstream media that they hear the we and they just assume you can't speak English very well because it does not compute. <laughs> yeah, I'm clearly an immigrant. I speak with an Indian accent. You know, I'm brown skinned. Like, oh, wait a second. You know, let's check uh, the English questions here. <laughs> Uh, but I think it, it also, it, it really predominantly what it highlights is the entrenched uh, politics is obviously it's corporate politics. It's Wall Street dominated politics, but it benefits Wall Street dominated and pro-capitalist politics to make this, pers uh, make politics into personality contests. They're not actually personality contests. They are contests of your loyalty to Wall Street, but it helps them to portray them as such because then it enables you, in the corporate media to reject individuals in order to uh, really um, clamp down on movements, you know. And so our whole campaign was a fight back against that approach and said, the the only way, and this is wh where we were fundamentally different. We presented the idea that we strongly believe in, which is that the only way that a left elected representative, much more so a socialist elected representative, can use their office effectively is if they use it to build mass movements around concrete demands. And you can't make it about yourself precisely because you cannot, as an individual, fight the Goliath of the democratic establishment and big business. That is impossible. And so what we have shown since then, and this comes to the concrete victories we have helped win, is that uh, we, we showed that it is possible to be elected as an unapologetic socialist, as an un unapologetic opponent of big business politics, and yet not be marginalized and isolated and ineffective, or not sell out. You know, it, those are the two very, uh, you know, that those are the pitfalls that 
elected representatives who who ge have genuine intentions of helping working people, they fall into, and you fall into one of those traps because you think that it's about you. Instead, we have to understand that this is a way to build mass movements, and it's those movements that will help bring the whatever little bit of change in the balance of power you, you can bring, which otherwise is ruthless against ruthlessly against the working class. One of the fundamental ways in which we have uh, showed a different kind of politics has been uh, uh, in how we approached this, uh, you know, elected office as an office that belongs to ordinary people. Obviously, politically, we have shown that you know by really using our office as a vehicle for social movements. But it's also in other ways. For example, when I ran for office in 2013. I pledged that as a socialist and as a working class representative, I would take home only the average, uh, uh, only the wage of the average Seattle worker, and after taxes would donate my, uh, what I consider lavish six-figure salary, lavish because most working people don't have that, six-figure salary for building social movements. And in fact, it goes into a solidarity fund where we democratically decide to, uh, um, to uh, support strike funds of local unions, and uh, uh, other struggles, uh, and I would I would clarify that this is we don't have a charity standpoint about this. We don't believe that this money is about giving charity to working class people, but it's about demonstrating how seriously working class people have to take the question of accountability of their elected leaders. And accountability has to come in many different ways, and this is part of the accountability. And I would really urge. Uh, that we on the left think about the question of uh, forming a new party, a new party for ordinary working people, a party that stands with us, a party where the rank and file have the, uh, the decision-making power collectively to decide who should run for office from that party. And really, this has to be part of that uh, discussion as well, You know that our elected leaders should take the average worker's wage because they have to be rooted in and accountable to the working people they are supposed to be representing. And so I interrupted you and you were making the full list. Can you talk a little bit more about the other fights, like what you won on affordable housing? And yeah, so we yeah we won fifteen dollars an hour by early June. So that was you know that was historic, making Seattle the first major city to win a fifteen dollar minimum wage. And this was this was despite the fierce opposition of big business, but also the Democratic establishment, which controls this city. It wasn't like we were fighting you know, Republicans. Uh, and then uh, last summer, during the height of the George Floyd B Black Lives Matter protests, we won another historic victory, which is the Amazon tax, which is the tax on the largest corporations to fund affordable housing, social housing, and Green New Deal programs. And those are sort of the bookends. And in, in between, we have won a whole series of major renters' rights, which may not have made national news, all of it, but they are certainly really important because they are, each, you know, each of them is, is an example of how a lot of it is deemed impossible until you have a fighting class struggle approach, and then suddenly it forces the hand, it forces the establishment to concede. And one of those I'll mention is the ban on winter evictions. And you know, I'm sure there's there's much more you could go into here. I, I'll just give a kind of uh, mea culpa that I just remembered 
from 2015, and, and I want I, this is a specific instance, but I wonder if you could talk about it as a general principle. I remember reading in 2015 uh, about your I, what was the story that you refused to recognize the flag of South Vietnam or something like that, and uh, which is objectively the correct <laughs> political stance to take uh, for reasons you can get into if you want. Uh, this, in, this incident is not actually about the politics of that question, but I saw that in 2015, again, sort of before Bernie, before my mind had been changed about sort of how we should approach some of these kind of political questions. And I remember I uh, was talking to a socialist alternative member in Chicago where I live, Steve, Steve Edwards. And I said, Steve, is, is, is this really what you want to be expending political capital on i mean like she's right of course but is is that is that smart to to waste i think i said waste political capital on an issue like this and he offered you a robust robust defense of you and in hindsight uh he was clearly correct uh because i was operating out of this this mindset of like oh well, well there's only this like finite amount of political capital that people like shamas want have to use in their position as a city elected city council member and so they should probably use it on this but not on that uh but clearly uh you're still here uh six years later and you know you're, you face all kinds of pushback which we're going to get into in a little bit but you've also shown that that my mindset in 2015 about how you should approach these kind of political questions is not True, it's not that you have this only limited amount of political capital to use, that actually through acting, through, you know, uh, building the mass movement uh, behind you, uh, through everything that you, you've done in your time in office, you actually create more of that kind of political capital. Uh, and so you're, you're not shying away from these important fights um, that, you know, you you tackle them uh, head on and uh, it's, it's, it's worked out pretty well in terms of your being able to advance a left agenda in Seattle. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's an important question. And I would, I would, of course, not, I would never say that what, what the, the question you raised with Steve and Steve would agree with me is it's not that we shouldn't be thinking about uh, strategy and tactics. We absolutely should be. I mean, we, we aren't here uh, three elections later and all these attempts to remove us from City Hall later because we we were somehow sledgehammerish in our approach. So in that sense, it is completely correct and fair to ask questions that do we really want to engage in this battle or not? And in fact, that goes to my earlier point as well. You know, when we uh, choose the demands that we are going to wage a major battle on, you know, it really helped to energize working people around the concrete demands, those are not done in any cavalier fashion whatsoever. It is extremely, you know, there's a lot of thought and uh, uh, debate that goes on into, uh, for example, there was a lot of debate inside Socialist Alternative that finally led us to understand that, yes, $15 an hour is going to be the major demand that is going to captivate the uh, imagination of ordinary people and that we should go for this. And at this moment, there may be some opposition from some key leaders uh, in the Democratic Party, but you know what? The rank and file will stand with us. So in that sense, it is. it was also a product of very conscious thinking. And as far as that example that you gave um, about the South Vietnam flag is concerned, you know, that's an example of where we'd, we did, it's not something we brought forward. It was brought forward by, um, I think, business-oriented and corporate-oriented uh, people. And for us, and this goes to your question of, about political capital, I think... It's crucial to understand, uh, as you yourself uh, sort of concluded, that that it, it, that things will be hard when we try to be principled. But it is nonetheless important to do that because what we are 
what we are doing is, uh, you know, it's important to remember that we, you know, for us, we, we, we know that we're not going to build uh, socialism in Seattle, much, much less nationally or globally with one city council office. So what is the role we want to play? So the, so the track record we leave as socialists is also extremely crucial to show that at every step of the way, even when the fight gets really hard, you still have to do the right thing because that is what the working class needs you to do. If you sell out and you say, well, that's because I, I couldn't fight that, then that sends the exact same message that the Democrats have been sending so far, you know, that, oh, well, you know, we can't take on this fight, we can't take on this fight. And that, that, that idea, even with well-meaning people, can acquire a logic of its own and it can be just a downward spiral, you know? Yeah, so... Let's talk about, I mean, we talked about what, you, what you've accomplished, uh, but of course uh, you have faced pushback along the way. And um, can you just talk about that pushback and talk about the context of Seattle and maybe Seattle's uh, specificities? I mean, I think people who are not from Seattle probably know that it is a fairly liberal city, pretty dominated by the Democratic Party, uh, a city where a lot of, you know, companies like Microsoft and Amazon are really central players. I mean, they're they're the kind of power elites of the city. Uh, and you, uh, in trying to go up against capital in the city, have unavoidably gone up against them and they have pushed back. So can you talk a little bit about what that pushback uh, from them and from the other players in uh, Seattle politics have looked like? Yes. I mean, Seattle, as you said, is a very progressive city as, as far as the consciousness of ordinary people is concerned. Uh, and I do have to, though, uh, maybe say Seattle area at this point, because there has been such you know, a massive rise in rents. I mean, their rents have been in the stratosphere for a long time. Uh, and it's kind of like a San Francisco. Oh, oh, yeah, very much. I mean, obviously, San Francisco has had, you know, probably a decade or two ahead of us in that same kind of gentrification and skyrocketing of rents. But we have very much seen that. And, you know, the last many years, you know, about a decade or so has been really cash rich for the property developers, the big corporations. You mentioned Amazon, of course, and Microsoft in the Seattle area. At the same time, working people have been pushed out of the city center. And in the, the district where our council uh, office presides over, you know, District 3, that, that is very much the city's core, you know, Capitol Hill, Central District. These are the, this is the urban core of the city, which used to be the some of the most affordable places for ordinary people. And now many of them have pushed out. The, character, the demographic has uh, changed uh, in a big way because of that. And so, so on the, so, Overall, if you look at the Seattle area, the consciousness of ordinary people is, in reality, I would say, well to the left of what's on offer, politically speaking. And we have big business, obviously, that has been opposed tooth and nail to virtually any progressive policy. I mean, any victory that we have won, they have had lawsuits, multiple lawsuits against each one. I hear that they're gearing up with multiple lawsuits against the Amazon tax now, which, of course, we fully expect them to do that. They did all kinds of lawsuits against 15. They didn't want win any single one of them. They've done lawsuits on the corporate landlords have done lawsuits on every renter's rights victory we have won. They have not been able to push back on a single one. So, you know, our track record is pretty um, pretty impressive in terms of the what we have achieved here. Uh, but it's not only big business and corporate landlords that have been opposed to us. It's also the democratic establishment. And as I said, of course, there is a growing current of right wing. There is, uh, you know, there's all, all kinds of right uh, right wing 
radio shows, which actually will become relevant when we talk about the attacks against our office now. But politically speaking, who are the power brokers? It's the democratic establishment. And so it is the democratic establishment at whose doorstep the unaffordability and homelessness crisis lies. It's a democratic establishment that has, both at the city level and at the Washington state level, given massive handouts to big companies while selling out ordinary people. I mean, I don't know if you remember this or if we had talked about this, Michael, but three days after I was officially elected in November of 2013, it was a rainy night and I was at a rally by the Boeing workers who were angry, you know, absolutely, it was a historic betrayal that they had experienced from the Democratic administration, including Democratic Governor Inslee at the state level, who had given uh, the what became the single largest corporate handout in U.S. history, nearly $9 billion to the Boeing executives, to the Boeing millionaires and billionaires. And it was all done in the name of, well, if we don't, this is this is all, it's, this is the Democratic Party's tagline. If we don't do this, if we don't give what the corporate executives want, they'll take jobs away. Well, what happened since then? 13,000 jobs have moved from Washington state. So they gave in to this economic blackmail, completely sold out the machinist union and the workers. And so it, it shows you that what we are up against is obviously the big business, but it's also the political spokespersons of big business, and that's been the Democratic uh, Party leadership. Uh, and in just one other example I'll mention of this is in 2019, when we ran for our second election, we obviously had the nakedly Amazon candidate, you know, the obviously the chamber candidate, but in the primary, and that's the candidate we defeated, we defeated Amazon's candidate in the general election, but in the primary election, there was another candidate who was put forward by the self-professed progressive Democrats and two, you know, two of the Democratic uh, self-professed progressive Latinas, women on the council, put forward their own candidate. And they went around in the media saying, you know, we, we stand for all the same things Shama stands for. We just don't like her personally. And here is a candidate who stands for everything she stands for. He's just going to be nice. You know, this is nonsense. And this is, and, but they, but but these kinds of personalized attacks, falsified personalized attacks, will happen because they are cover for what actually lies beneath it, which is an actual political disagreement with working class politics. You know, I live in Chicago in the 35th ward, which is represented by Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who I know you know, who's a socialist, a DSA city council member, and he faced an opponent in 2019 that was the exact same line it was like well carlo i'm not opposed to any of carlos's progressive policies i just think that he's he doesn't go about it in a, in a, in a nice way nice way his yeah. personality is a barrier to actually getting things done on the city council uh thankfully he he trounced her uh but i think this is going to be uh, a line especially in like democratic dominated cities like chicago and seattle we're going to hear this a lot kind of pitch to well, well in in my ward which is a gentrifying ward formerly uh working class latinos increasingly uh more upwardly mobile white people uh, it's a pitch to like well-educated uh relatively wealthy liberals yeah it's a sort of the civility politics yeah yeah and and it's used as a, and it's uh, it's not unconscious. It's consciously used as a weapon against working people who have no choice but to fight against the status quo, 
if they are to win even a small measure of justice, let alone what we would consider a livable and sustainable society. And it's actually, you mentioned Chicago. I mean, it's really crucial that the Chicago Teachers Union pushed back against Lori Lightfoot's disastrous idea of opening schools without giving the teachers, the parents, the children any any choices here in the in the face of COVID and the new strains of COVID. So can you talk about some of these particular battles that you have had to face, especially recently? I mean, before this interview, I did a Google News search of your name, and there's just like an unending stream of like relatively recent stories, ranging from like deranged stuff of a person confronting you in a grocery store, uh, to you receiving threats from an official Seattle Fire Department email account, uh, to attempt to, I believe, recall you, uh, to just like what sounds to me, which you said in your Jacobin article that you wrote in November of last year, um, and is just clear from from this cursory Google search that I did, it just seems like an unending stream of attacks ranging from serious to just like petty harassment almost. Yes, I think that's true. And I think it really is, has been uh, quite educational. And I, I would... I really want to share this um, experience with those of uh, who are listening here, of course, but just with the left broadly and with activists, young people who are getting politically, uh, you know, active and radicalized in this current period, to understand for us to collectively understand that there is no other way that social change can happen, and there's no other way that political work can happen for the left, which is that. If you are going to go up against the status quo that favors a deeply exploitative system, then you are going to go up against that system's, you know, the people who want to uphold that system. So there's no neutral ground you can occupy and yet win any substantive reforms, let alone, you know, any fundamental social change. So that uh, avoidance of that political clash is, I would say, deadly almost fatal to the left. We have to actually understand that political conflict is going to be necessary and have also a serious approach to understanding history. I mean, the labor movement could hardly have been achieved without very, very courageous people in the 19th and 20th century, you know, literally being giving up their lives for this struggle. And why? Because the ruling class, the bosses, the capitalists, they don't want workers to get organized. They don't want workers to be empowered. So there is no uh, there is no universe where you can say, these are great things. Let's get agreement from big business. Let's get agreement from the Democratic or Republican establishment. There's no universe where that happens. You will face a clash. The question is, how do you best empower yourself to win against that clash? How do you best empower yourself to transform the balance of forces in favor of working people. And so that's that's at play in real time in Seattle. As you said, we're facing a recall campaign from big business and the right wing, but I suspect there are Democrats also behind it. You know, we will see more of who's behind it as the campaign ramps up. Right now, the Washington State Supreme Court is in the midst of delivering a ruling that hasn't come out yet on whether the recall campaign can go forward on the ballot or not. But we haven't been letting the grass grow under our feet. You know, we have launched what we're calling the Kshama Solidarity Campaign uh, because we have to fight against these attempts. We don't have faith in the courts any more than we have faith in the police under capitalism. The courts don't support working class um, needs. They support the status quo of the ruling class. And so 
uh, we we have to fight back in a grassroots way in the same way that we have won the election so far. And yes, I think it's not it's not a coincidence that we're seeing this recall campaign against our office. We're seeing these uh, personalized attacks, as you mentioned, you know, people ambushing us at grocery stores or wherever. I think it is it is also a sign of how uh, the far right is getting more and more emboldened. You know, it's it's so it, the recall against us on this coast of the United States is not in a, separate in the in some in some sense from the attacks on the Capitol building on the other coast on January sixth. You know, you are seeing an emboldenment of the far right. You're seeing uh, uh, certainly the growth of right populism. Trump is threatening to form a right wing party. So I think. All of this raises the question for the urgency of building the left, because the more that we have uh, the status quo of uh, corporate, uh, the corporate agenda, we're going to see more and more openings for the left, but for the right. But it, but it's a reminder of the openings for the left in in reality, and that's why uh, we should not see the attacks against me as personally against me but against the left and specifically against the Black Lives Matter movement. I think the ruling class was pretty rattled by the fact that you had the largest street protest in US history with a multiracial working class character to it. Uh, and so it's not, again, it's no coincidence that two of the four fa completely false charges against me in the recall are related to my role in the Black Lives Matter movement. So I think it is, a re it is really a question of how will the left rise up to the challenge of drawing people away from the influence of right populist ideas and providing an alternative to the corporate agenda. So there's been this explosion in left elected activity, electoral activity in, in recent years, and certainly since you were elected. Um, I think people sometimes uh, draw this sort of dichotomy between local and, and national politics and they say, oh, well, uh, well, they, they, can, they can say one of several things. They can either say like, oh, the, the local's kind of a waste of time and we should be doing like, you know, Bernie type campaigns. The, those are the ones that have the real transformative potential because they could reach millions of people or whatever. Uh, or they say the opposite, that sort of stuff like Bernie is kind of a waste of time, but we should, we should, we can have more of an impact on the uh, local level. And, you know, you're somebody who has been elected to local office for eight years at this point, uh, and we've gone over the what you've accomplished at the local level, but it also seems like uh, for you, that that's kind of a false dichotomy. I mean, what you have done on the local level, what, what you were describing in the early part, earlier part of this conversation about using your campaign uh, as a, a way to, you know, using the we, the word we, I mean, that obviously brings to mind the like, not me, us of Bernie's campaign. And it seems like what you, the example that you have set uh, on the local level in Seattle has had national implications. So can you just talk about how you see that supposed dichotomy between local and national politics? Yeah, I think that's a very important question for the left going forward, especially as you said, with so many left or socialists elected at the local level in many different cities or counties around the United States, which is a really heartening development. And to some degree, it's, 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 it is a question of also uh, a, a practical assessment. You know, some campaigns are maybe within your reach to run because it's also a question of resources. It's a question of how many uh, hundreds of people are able to involve themselves because these are going to be grassroots campaigns. Certainly, we w this wouldn't be uh, uh, we wouldn't have won a single victory if it was just me. It, it absolutely socialist alternative. My organization has been a backbone of uh, political and organizational. And on top of that, it matters that socialist alternative is rooted in 
the larger movement, which, uh, you know, hundreds of people came out to fight for each of our victories. So in that sense, it is completely legitimate to think about which campaigns make sense to run at a given time. And as I said before, earlier in the show, uh, important to think about strategy and tactics. But I do think it would be mistaken for us to draw a dichotomy in general between local and national politics. I mean, I often hear from people that, oh, you know, it's it's just unthinkable that Bernie would get elected at a national level. You know, we just got to support Biden or whoever. But uh, locally, more power to you. Look at what Shama Sawant has done. You know, you, you can do that there. The Democratic establishment will, you know, it's like, you're, it's like there, there's a suggestion that, oh, you'll run under, under the radar of the Democratic establishment's <laughs> opposition if you run smaller campaigns. Well, if, if our eight-year experience has shown anything, it is that completely, you know, that, that hypothesis is torn to shreds. The point is that if you use any prominent office, whether it's an elected legislator or an elected union leader or a non-elected person who is leading a social movement, in any of those situations, if you are willing to actually uphold the interests of the rank and file you say you're fighting for, and you are willing to put aside whatever career or personal interests you have and go up against uh, an establishment that is opposed to you, then they will, uh, you know, they will come down on you like a ton of bricks. There will be opposition. That is why we are facing death threats. We are facing threats from ordinary people who are right wing who are confronting us on a personalized uh, level. We are uh, we are seeing right wing talk shows all in the Seattle area. Uh, you know, really. Uh, demonizing that brown socialist woman on the city council, uh, and we are seeing Democrats who are uh, plotting, uh, you know, uh, oppositional candidates against socialists. We are. You gave the example of Carlos Ramirez Rosa on the Chicago alderman level. So what we're seeing is that whether it is local or it is Bernie Sanders, if you pose a challenge to the billionaire class and their politicians. Yes, you will come up against opposition. The question is, do we have an option to not fight? No, we don't have an option to not fight. So we are going to have to fight. And remember that if we have the ability, the understanding to build mass movements around us, then it will pose a challenge. We're not going to win every, every, every battle we fight, but we can certainly show that we are. many of these battles are completely possible to win if we have, it, as, as Bernie said, if we understand that it's not me us. And that's why in that spirit, I would really urge everybody who's watching this, please support our solidarity campaign. We need the left to be united against this kind of right wing threat. Uh, if the, I can tell you this uh, with a guarantee, if big business, the democratic establishment and the right wing succeed in recalling me, then they will use it as a template to go after other socialists, other elected leaders in the left and other leaders, as I said, in the movement as a whole, they will use it as an example to go after us. And so our only option is to fight back and defeat them. And so if you're listening to this, please go to kshamasolidarity.org. That's my first name, K-S-H-A-M-A, solidarity.org, and join us in this struggle. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd. You can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, subscribe to our print issue or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe. 